As we continue in our sermon series through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, His Kingdom Come, I would invite you to just turn to Matthew 20 if you have a copy of God's Word. And while you're doing that, let me just share with you a story. My wife Julie and I have three wonderful girls. They are our pride and joy, and um, we uh, work hard at our parenting. Uh, but one of the things that uh, we've observed is that our parenting strategies have changed over time over the last 20 years. Uh, specifically, some of the things that have changed are some of the rules that we used to have early on in our parenting, uh, we discovered they may have been a little too strict. Uh, when our first child was born, we were a little high strung. There were a lot of rules about food and uh, vegetables and bedtimes and chores and which cartoons were inappropriate and which hobbies were best and uh, all kinds of restrictions that were enforced with a degree of, of firmness that we thought were, we were doing really important things. But over the years, we've kind of eased up a little bit when we got to our youngest child. I think that's a pretty common parenting narrative. Uh, you live and you learn. It's kind of funny, actually, sometimes. But our oldest child does not see the humor in this at all. Uh, in fact, when the oldest one sees the youngest one getting to do something that she was specifically forbidden to do when she was that age, uh, she does not typically say, oh, my dear little sister, I rejoice in your good fortune. No. Typically, uh, the response is a look of incredulity on her face, and then she turns her gaze toward her parents, the enemies, and she says three very loud words. That's not fair. Mom, Dad, why are you letting her do that? You would never have let me do that. And I am not able to give her much solace or comfort. I called her yesterday at college just to say, hey, you know, you know how you're always saying that uh, we're harder on you than we are on your little sisters? Do you have any specific examples of rules that we enforced on you uh, that you feel like were relaxed over time? And her response was, yeah, all of them. That's what she said, all of them. And I said, well, honey, it's time for you to learn this very important life lesson. Uh, life's not fair. Life's not fair. Uh, and uh, life's not fair to any of us, which makes it kind of fair, actually. So um, those three words are not three words that we ever had to teach to our children. Uh, it's not like they were in the sandbox when they were kids and somebody else stole a bucket or something. We got to see whenever that happens. You have to say these three words. You have to say, that's not fair. No, that's how you know. They just sort of automatically know those three words. And uh, I think we all do. Uh, we all tend to sort of automatically look at life through what I'm going to call this morning the, the that's not fair glasses. Uh, that's the perspective that we are just born with. Uh, at work, if somebody else gets a promotion that we felt like we deserved, we say, you know, that's not fair. Uh, if we're driving in our car pretty much the same speed as everybody else, but we're the ones who get pulled over, we say, that's not fair. Uh, singles, when, when we see our friends getting married and starting their families faster than, than we are and we want to do that too, we think, you know, that's not fair. Teenagers, you, you try out for the team, but somebody else gets your spot or you try out for the play, but somebody else gets your part, you think, that's not fair. Wives, you know, it seems like her husband makes more than your husband or it seems like her husband is more emotionally intelligent than your husband, that's not fair. Homeowners of central New Jersey, it seems like we pay a little more than the rest of the country in property taxes. That's not fair. Those of you who are fairly Dickinson alumni, uh, while, while the Liberty University Flames were, were celebrating uh, during round one of the NCAA tournament with their first ever win, you guys had to face Gonzaga. That's definitely not fair. 
we're always kind of sizing up. We're always calculating. We're always looking around and, and, and looking through the lens of the that's not fair glasses. When you look at your life with God spiritually through the that's not fair lens, it creates a lot of problems for you and for those around you. That's what Matthew chapter 20 is actually all about. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. There's a parable there called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Now, before we get to this parable, you need to know the context of the parable in the book of Matthew. Okay, so hold on just a second. If you were here last week, you know in in Matthew 19, Pastor Bob did an excellent message on the rich young ruler's interchange with Jesus. And Jesus challenged him with his greed and said, hey, you know, you just have to sell everything you have and uh, give it all to the poor. And the rich young ruler went away sad after Jesus uh, encouraged him to do that. Remember? Right after that, the apostle Peter was standing nearby and steps forward and makes a statement. Let me remind you, Peter said this, well, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? What do we get out of this? Now, at this point, Jesus is going to respond with with both a word of affirmation and exhortation. Uh, There's something right about what Peter says, but there's also something wrong about what Peter says. So he's going to get kind of a an encouragement and a warning all wrapped together from the Lord Jesus. Uh, The doctrine of rewards in the scriptures is actually somewhat controversial. Uh, Some scholars don't see this teaching at all. Some scholars see this as very clear. That's really irrelevant to this question. The issue here is what about if there could be a selfish motivation behind my desire for rewards? Pastor Bob gave a very thoughtful illustration about this last week. Let me remind you. He said there was a farmer, and he grew a big carrot, and he gave it to the king, and and then uh, the king said, wow, that's so generous, and he he rewarded this man. Well, somebody nearby, you know, a a wealthy uh, person had had a stallion. He said, well, yeah, that's for a carrot. How about this? So he he brings his stallion to the king, and the king says, thank you, and he dismisses him. And the guy's kind of, you know, upset with this. He says, you know, you rewarded this guy for his gift, the carrot. Why not me? And the king said, that's because he gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. And so what he was getting at there was the issue of motivation. It can become self-serving. The the rewards from the Lord are at, at best a byproduct of serving him faithfully. Uh, You're rewarded when you're not really focused on the rewards. And that's Peter's problem. He's too focused on the reward. And this danger is so serious that Jesus devotes the entire chapter of chapter 20 in Matthew to address his motivation issue. And that's what I want to talk to you about. So you're going to see three parts to the message. You're going to see a proverb. uh, You're going to see a parable. And then you're going to see three killer questions. A proverb parable and three killer questions. Before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we bow before you and we do so with humility. We want to hear from you, so thank you for preserving this text. And now we ask, Holy Spirit, you inspired this text. Would you also illuminate our eyes and our minds and our hearts so that we might hear from God Almighty 
not some preacher, because we don't need to hear from him. We need to hear from you in your word. And so speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's start with that proverb. Uh, now, instead of starting with Matthew 20, verse 1, I have to start with the very last verse of chapter 19, because it's actually connected for the context, okay? At the end of chapter 19, Jesus makes this enigmatic statement. He says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What exactly does this mean? I typically hear this when I'm in line at a church potluck, and the guy in front of me is like, hey, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go, first will be last, okay, I'll go. (laughs) Is that what he's talking about? I think that's a little bit of a superficial understanding of this proverb. This passage begins and ends with this intriguing proverb. In fact, look, he repeats it later. I'll show you on the screen in chapter 20 and verse 16. He says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Only at the end, he inverts it. And scholars have a term for this that they call an inclusio or an inclusion. It's a literary technique that they would use to bracket off a passage. Some people call it a sandwich because, you know, the, the beef patties there in the middle. The, the, the proverb serves as a frame around our passage today, and it gives us a clue to how to understand what in the world this parable is talking about, and the frame helps us understand kind of the moral of the story. So I want you to remember this proverb, because I'm going to come back to it at the end. Now, with that said, now we can look at the parable. This parable, if you're not familiar with this, let me just warn you, this parable is incredibly refreshing, And this parable is extremely frustrating, all at the same time. It is a parable that we love to hate. Uh, It is one of those parables that Jesus tells, and it's got all this tension built, baked right into the parable. Let's take a look. Chapter 20, verse 1 begins like this. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Pretty common practice. Rich landowners would go down uh, to South Plainfield, I mean, into the marketplace early in the morning to find the workers that they need for that day. And you would usually hire everybody that you needed for the job at the beginning of the day. The primary concern of the landowner here is to get the job done. Follow me so far? Okay. But that wasn't enough. Verse 2. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. This was a common wage. Uh, One denarius would be like maybe 100 bucks for the day. They make a deal. The landowner goes, you, 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 go get to work. You know what to do. Now, because he had such a large harvest, around 9 o'clock, he goes back to the marketplace to get some more workers. So it says this in verse 3. About 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. What I want you to notice here about this second group is that he doesn't make a contract with the second group. With the second group, he just says, trust me, we'll like work it out later, and they simply trust in the integrity of the vineyard owner. See that? They trust in the integrity of the vineyard owner. And then there's so much work to do. It says this, he went out again about noon and about three in the, mor- the afternoon and did the same thing. Now, 
One of the things that Jesus does whenever he tells stories, because he's so, so brilliant, is he always brings things to the extreme, to the extreme. And that's what he does next. About five in the afternoon, he found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? And he knows the answer, and we know the answer too, right? The answer is from verse seven, because no one's hired us, they answered. Now, I would have thought that these guys at 5 p.m. would have given up at this point. Wouldn't you have given up? But yet here they are, and I don't know why they weren't picked. Maybe they were the least impressive looking workers. Maybe they were like the last picked for the kickball team out there. We really don't know exactly why these guys didn't get picked, but Jesus comes along and chooses them, says, I got a job for you. And then at 5 p.m., he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Come on, you want to work? Let's go. We've got to work. Hey, an hour's pay is better than nothing. Finally, the workday is over. And just a small little problem comes up at the six o'clock whistle. And, and everybody listening to this parable would have seen this coming. They're, they're going, Jesus, you know, what are you going to do now? How are you going to work this out? You're going to categorize them? You're going to be like the 12-hour guys over here, okay, the nine-hour guys over here, the six-hour guys over there, the one-hour guys. How are you going to exactly work out the payment for the day? Because this, you know, this, this could get a little dicey. Well, it says in verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired. And going on to the first. Remember that proverb? The first will be last and last will be. Don't forget that. The story goes on, verse 9. The workers who were hired about 5 in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Those who got hired last open up their pay envelope. They discover they get a whole denarius They've been paid for a whole day's work for only part of the day, and everybody behind them in line starts to get excited. They're like, we're not getting paid a denarius a day. We're getting paid a denarius an hour. That's what's going on here. Now, if you study the parables of Jesus, you'll know that Jesus has a, a technique that he uses. Craig Blomberg calls it the reversal of expectation. Usually in the parable somewhere, there's some sort of twist. There's some sort of like surprise. There's some sort of like, you know, something happens that wasn't expected. And that's what we're about to see next. And maybe you've heard this before. Or maybe you haven't. But if, if you have, then you know where he is going. And you know that this is so unsettling because it seems so unfair. And one of the reasons why I believe these are the actual words of Jesus is because if you were making it up, you wouldn't make it up this way. It's so hard to swallow. It's so hard to understand. And I'll be honest, it's not just unsettling to us. It's unsettling to me. And I think specifically it's unsettling for people like me, religious leaders, people who are religious people. It's unsettling for the, I want to work hard for the Lord type of people. You know, I'm a pastor, I went to Bible college, I went to seminary, I, I read my Bible, I memorize my Bible, I love to serve the Lord, serve others. I, I might not be in the group of the guys who started the, at the beginning of the day, but I am like not in the group of the guys that started at the end of the day. I am not part of that group. I want to be in the got there first, work really hard, do my part kind of group. 
So here we are. The last guys to get paid come to the front of the line, and here's what happens. Verse 10. So when those who were hired first came, they were expecting to receive more. But each of them also received an denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Boy, these guys are bent out of shape. Really, Jesus? We work 12 times longer than them and we get the same measly rate of pay? How does that make sense? Who are these Johnny-come-latelys? They're like blisters. They show up when the work is done. We've been here working in the sun. We've been working hard. We're sweating through our clothes. We're being ripped off. That's not fair. And they're grumbling. It's the same word for grumbling used in the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament in Numbers 14 when the children grumble against Moses. And then they say, you've made them equal to us. Did you see that phrase? You have made them equal to us, and they are not equal to us. They are, never mind, but they are not equal to us. Let's just leave it at that, Jesus. We got here early. We worked through lunch. I exerted more time, more effort, more energy. They are not equal to us. This is why this parable is so frustrating. I'm sure if Richard Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO union, knew this parable was in the Bible, he would call for a boycott of all Bibles. This is just not fair. But here's the kicker. The Lord Jesus is teaching us that the man who pays so unfairly is actually God himself. Why would he teach this? Well, first of all, he doesn't teach us this to give us an economic lesson. This is not a financial tutorial on how to run a business. Can you imagine if a business owner actually behaved like this business owner behaved? That's crazy. In fact, it is crazy. Brendan Manning used to call this parable the parable of the crazy farmer because he is kind of crazy. This is not a financial lesson. It has nothing to do with our economy, our politics, nothing like that. This is a spiritual lesson. And to understand the spiritual lesson, I just want to share with you a quote that I heard many years ago from Phil Yancey that stuck in my mind like a piece of glass. He said, the reason why we don't understand this parable is because we tend to identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. See, there's this category that I think I'm in that maybe I'm not actually in. See, many of us as Christians, we pay lip service to the grace and mercy of God, but then somewhere deep down inside, over time, we convince ourselves that we've earned something and we become bitter with what God has for us. But the scripture is really clear about this. I mean, Romans chapter three says, there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. I mean, if I really want my wages, I can just open up to Romans 6.23, which says the wages of sin is death. You know, be careful about asking 
God for what you deserve. He, he just might give it to you. I'm not going to earn my standing with God, earn my keep or get into heaven based on what I do. The only reason why I have any standing at all is because of what has been done for me. The hymn writer was correct. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Now this leads us to these three killer questions. And these three questions are so to the heart. I mean, Jesus knows how to ask a question. And I, if you want to understand this parable, you got to understand the three questions. And we'll go through them slow. So question number one is going to hit you. Okay, here we go. Just get, brace yourself. Here's question number one, verse 13. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Now, whenever Jesus calls you friend in a parable, you got to watch out. He's about to hit you behind, between the eyes. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree? To work for a denarius, take your pay and go. Didn't, didn't you agree? Well, weren't you there? We shook hands. You said you were okay with this. I held up my end of the bargain. What's with you accusing me of being unfair? See, question number one is about a correction to the charge of unfairness or the charge of injustice. And to understand this, let me just offer you two theological categories. Theologians say there are two senses of justice. There is retributive justice, and then there is distributive justice. Retributive justice is giving everyone exactly what they deserve. A distributive justice is treating everyone exactly the same way. Uh, while our God is perfectly holy and obligated to always give retributive justice, God is not obligated to offer distributive justice. God is free he does not have to treat me the same as you. He does not have to treat everyone the same way. And so this is where I run into trouble. Instead of looking up to God and my relationship with him, I start looking around and I start comparing my lot with your lot and I start thinking, you know what, it seems like God was better with this person than he was with me and, and here's the thing, I don't know their story. I don't really even know half their story. I don't know what God is up to in their lives. I am presuming that I'm as knowledgeable as God is in order to accuse him of being unfair with me as compared to that one. And that's not a good idea. The issue here is not what God has done for somebody else. The issue is what has God done for you? What has God entrusted to you? Uh, the issue is hasn't God been fair to you? You stick with you. You do you. You be faithful with what I've entrusted to you. Yeah, Jesus, but I did work. I worked really hard on my end. And, I, you know, I was, I was really slaving out there and working hard right after you gave me that job in the first place. Oh, yeah, there is that, isn't there? You're the one who found me in the marketplace and chose me and gave me this opportunity to even work in the first place, even that was by grace, wasn't it? See, this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, for what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 
See, there's really two lenses with which we can view the world. We can view the world in the, with a that's not fair lens, okay? Uh, but what Jesus is encouraging us to do is take another lens called the lens of everything I have in this world is all because of God's grace lens. And try those glasses on. They'll take you to a totally different perspective and they'll take you to a totally different place on the inside. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a, there's a guy I know named Francois. Francois, he had one child, but he had married a little later in life when he was just, uh, when he was 48. And so they had their child and, and they were older parents uh, and eventually his wife passed away and he was grieving. And um, in the midst of that grieving, he said, Pastor, enjoy your wife. God has been so good to me. I never even thought I would be married. I never even thought I would get to have a child. God has been so good to me. Now, there's a man who gets it, who's wearing the glasses of everything I have is because of God's grace. And he's found what Paul calls in Philippians 4, the secret to contentment. His sufficiency is found in Christ alone. Now, that's question number one. Okay, the next question is even more convicting. The next question is really a big deal, so pay careful attention to what Jesus says exactly. The next question, I mean, the crowd goes silent after this next question, okay? Jesus says this. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? That's a really good question, isn't it? In Greek, you can actually imply the answer to your question as yes or no. And in this case, Jesus implies the answer is a resounding yes. Did you see those first two words, I want? This is what the vineyard owner wants. It is not about what Dave wants. Doesn't God have the right to give grace if he wants to give grace? And mercy if he wants to give mercy. Is that not his prerogative? Of course it is. Why am I offended? God is not in debt to anyone. It's his gifts, it's his blessings, it's his talents, it's his church, it's his opportunities. He can do what he wants. This is what Romans 9 says as well. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. He is the potter. I am the clay. If I get shaped into anything resembling anything useful, that's God's grace. It is the kindness of the landowner to hire me and to promise me and to reward me. But it is based on the freedom of an almighty, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God. The late R.C. Sproul gave a fantastic story about this. He used to be a seminary professor in Pittsburgh, and he was teaching a big theology class of 250 students. And on the first day, he hands out the syllabi and explains the course requirements. And he said, there's going to be four term papers in this class. Uh, the first one is due September 30th. If you don't turn it in on time, you get an F. Unless you're in the hospital or something, get it in on time. Everybody understand? Yep, we got it. Okay, you're dismissed. September 30th rolls around. Only 225 students brought their paper in on time. 25 students came in shivering. 
Dr. Sproul, we're sorry. We didn't get it done. We were just in high school. We didn't really transition from high school to college very well. This is really hard. Can we please have an extension? Dr. Sproul says, okay, I'll give you a couple days. But remember, next time, I want your paper in on time. All right. October 30th comes around. This time, only 200 students decided to bring in their paper on time. And now 50 students were there saying, oh, Dr. Sproul, it was October, we had homecoming weekend, and we just didn't have enough time to get this assignment done. Can we please have an extension? He says, all right, I'll give you a couple days. He said, at that point, the whole student body just starts like singing uh, to me just spontaneously. We love you, Prof Sproul. Oh, yes, we do. We love you, Prof Sproul. We really do. He said they were so happy until November 30th came along. At that point, 150 students brought in their papers. And 100 students just stroll on into his class like nothing's wrong, just cool as a cucumber. And he looks at them and he goes, Erbig! I told you I'm going to get you back for that, Bob, that money thing last week. Erbig! You got your paper? Erbig goes, hey, prof, listen. Chill out, I'll have it for you in a couple days. Sproul takes out his great book and he goes, Erbig, F. Cunningham, where's your paper? I don't have it, prof. F. Smith, where's your paper? Don't have it. F. At that point, somebody in the back of the room yelled three words. I guess you can probably imagine what they were. That's not fair. Sproul loses it. He goes, who said that? Who said that in the back row? Patrick, was that you? Did you just say that's not fair? Patrick, do I also recall that you didn't turn in your October 30th paper on time as well? Yes, that's true, Pitt, Prof. That was me. Okay, you get an F for both of these papers. Would anybody like justice besides Patrick? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand the difference between justice and grace. The minute I begin thinking that God owes me grace, I am no longer thinking about grace. Grace is by definition voluntary. God's mercy is by definition voluntary. He says, I will give mercy on whom I will give mercy. And God has a right to do what he wants with his grace. That's just question two. We got one more question. Now, this third question, I mean, this third question is the question. He really gets to the root of what's going on, and he shows us, he puts a spotlight on how absurd my being offended at his generosity actually is. And man, this third, Jesus really knows how to land a punch, okay? So listen carefully. Don't I have the right, or are you envious? Because I am generous, are you envious? The word is paneros. It means to have an infectious disease that spreads. Because Are you envious? Because I am generous. The word is agathos, which means a, a benefactor. En envy is about me resenting you because you have something that I want and I don't even want you to have it. Why, why did they get that and not me? Why, why did they get that job or that house or that spouse or those kids or that car or whatever and not me? Jesus says, are you envious? I'm not, I'm not envious. That would be so childish for me to be envious. I'm not envious. Am I? Because 
Because if I was, then the problem would be with me, not with you. And, and maybe I am. And, and here's the problem with people like me, religious leaders. If we work for God with the wrong motivation, we eventually become totally disconnected from God and burn out. And that's what's going on with these workers who came in early. They, they think they've been so obedient, they've been so faithful, they've tried to do the right thing, but the harder they worked, the angrier they got. Because they don't like people who haven't worked as hard as they have to get something good. And they're angry, and they're envious, and they're self-righteous, and they're full of pride, and, and they're not like Jesus at all. Because somewhere along the line, they stopped caring that there was guys in the workplace, the marketplace over there, who didn't have a job yet. And what if God cares about them? What then? See, yes, God wants your hard work and service, but not so you can earn wages. God does not want to enter into a contractual relationship with you. God wants you to come and serve him not as a slave, as a son or a daughter. He wants me to obey just because it's the right thing to do. He wants me to serve because that's the way we do things in the family of God. We serve. We work hard for the Lord to enjoy intimacy with God. I work for God not to get God's things. I work for God because I love God, and I work for God because where else would I want to work? I want to be with him. And to the degree that I understand that, to the degree that you understand that, it would actually change your entire paradigm for why you serve God and how you think about working for God, and you won't be like these disgruntled workers anymore. Instead, you'll begin to obey God, not because you have to, but because you want to, and then you'll be a Christian who deep down knows the only reason I have a job at all is because he came down to the marketplace and gave me one. That's why. And the kingdom of Jesus that the book of Matthew is all about, the kingdom that he's rolling out is never based on our merit or our earnings, or our wages. This kingdom that is coming is always going to be based on his unmerited, unconditional, sacrificial love for his people, and it's going to be built on one word. Grace. Grace. The acronym GRACE has been said, stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. This whole idea of grace is so powerful and so unique. It is what makes Christianity completely set apart from every other system, from every other kingdom. And this grace is so refreshing 
and so powerful when you need it. I mean, when your guilt is exposed, what you're looking for is someone to give you something you don't deserve. You are looking for grace. But yet, grace is also that same thing that we're hesitant to extend when we're confronted with the guilt of others because of what they've done to us or done to someone that we love. Andy Stanley says this well. He says, grace, when we're on the receiving end, is extraordinarily refreshing. But grace, when it's required of us, is extraordinarily disturbing. That is so true. Grace is awesome, but grace is also costly and a little bit unsettling. But the vineyard owner comes to me and he comes to you and he says, this is the way I operate. Can you live with this? You still want to work with me? Because this is how I roll things out. I operate on grace. Now, the only way this is possible for God to extend this kind of grace to us is to understand the one character in the story today that was not treated justly. Now you might say, well, what character is that? I mean, it seems like when I read this parable, everybody gets treated justly here. Everybody got at least what they were expecting. That's true, except for the guy who is telling the story. See, in just a few short chapters in the book of Matthew, we are about to read about the gravest injustice of all time when the Son of God who has lived his entire life working in his Father's vineyard, who has earned the denarius, who has earned complete righteousness on our behalf, will not be paid. Instead, he will actually be mocked and spit upon and despised and lashed and beaten and killed. And unlike these grumbling workers, he's not even going to be complaining about it. Unlike these workers, he's not even going to defend himself. In fact, Isaiah 53 says, like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he will not open his mouth. Friends, if anyone ever in the history of the world would have been justified to complain about unfairness, if anyone ever could have said those three words, that's not fair, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus Christ works for the full day, earns the denarius, doesn't get paid, lays it down, gets the punishment I deserve, and then gives the denarius. Why? For you. He does it for you. The denarius he offers is eternal life because he lived a perfect life on your behalf and then offers that pay to anyone who will receive him. That's why he did it. Sally Lloyd-Jones says it well in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It was not the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. Rather, it was his love for you and for me who haven't put in a full day's work at all. And he now, the owner of this vineyard, turns to me and turns to you and says, will you come and work with me now? Because there's a lot of work to be done and there's people out there and it's 5 p.m. and they don't have a job yet and I want them in my vineyard. Can you live with this? Can you be part of my plan? And to anyone who says yes, he's welcomed in. So how, how does this parable apply? I, I think you can read this parable on so many levels and so let me just offer you three. There's at least three ways to apply this, I think. One one question that we could ask is, what did this mean to the original listeners back in the first century in Matthew chapter 20? I think that's always a good question to ask. And for that question, try this on. 
That phrase, equal to us, could point us forward to Ephesians chapter 2, where the church, the Apostle Paul says, is now made up of Jew and Gentile who are made equal partakers together in the kingdom of God. Who were the first ones who got the contract? The Jews. Now, after a couple thousand years of working with the Jews, Jesus extends the gospel of the kingdom to the Gentiles as well. They come later in the day, but still they get to work in the vineyard as well. The church is the Jew and the Gentile coming together, total equality. That's one level to read it. I think that's valid. A second question we should probably ask is, well, what what does this mean to us as a church 2,000 years later? And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking, how does this relate to our church's system of assimilation? How well are we doing as a congregation at helping those who have come more recently into the kingdom to feel like they are a part of a fellowship with us? Maybe those of us who've been here for a couple decades already. Because you have to be intentional about this, right? That's why we say at NBC, we're saving you a seat. And the reason why we say that is because there can be a very subtle sense in a church by the people who've been here a while who start to think, you know, we, we kind of we built this place. I mean, some of us like literally, like, see that part right over there? I like literally built that. I remember it was a Saturday, it was hot. Like, you know, I literally, I've, I've invested here. This is, this is uh, you know, this is the church that I've built. We've built together. We're happy you're here at our church. We want to welcome you to our church. Hey, good to see you at our church. I don't think we do this intentionally. It just kind of comes into our thinking without realizing it. And so we have to be careful. What would it look like to have a church of people who got here at 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. and 12 a.m. and 3 p.m. and 12 p.m., 3 p.m., even 5 p.m.? How do we create an environment that's welcoming to them? That's a good question, isn't it? Third, how do I read this on an individual level? Do you remember that proverb that he began and ended with, that the first will be last and the last will be first? Well, that's not a complicated math problem. That is a way of life for the individual Christian. It's a way that I see the world. See, here's what it means. The last will be first because they think that they're last, and, and the first will be last because they think that they're first. That's kind of what it comes down to. If, if you want to make yourself totally miserable in life, walk around thinking you should be first. Carry around this big old chip on your shoulder and just be like, you know, I deserve to be treated a lot better than these people around here being treated, right? I got some problems with you people. But if you want to live a life of godly contentment and find true happiness, then learn to go through life going, man, look at this. (laughs) Me, I should be in last place. I should be last. I'm the chief of sinners, but here I am. I'm like in the middle of the pack or something. I can't even believe this. This is just so awesome to be a part of this. Those people end up first. This is the challenge. If you'll just place your trust in this generous vineyard owner, if you'll live with humility, wonderfully unimpressed with yourself, not so concerned with your order, your rank, or what you think should be fair, if you'll take off the that's not fair glasses and just put on those other glasses of everything I have is because of God's grace, 
you will begin to see things differently and you'll begin to appreciate that which God has surrounded you with and, and your surroundings may just start to look a whole lot sweeter than they have for a long time. So what would it look like for you to be last? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Let me invite the worship team to come up and as they do, let me just invite you to imagine something. Just imagine living like this. Can you just imagine your life living like this with those glasses on? Can you, can you just imagine a church full of people who live like this, who thought like this, who, who engaged with others like this, who cared more about the people out there in the marketplace at 5 p.m. than they do about getting what they deserve? Can you imagine a church full of people who so embraced God's grace that Jesus became their all-sufficient source of joy and satisfaction. Let's be that church.